Good morning. Um, so we're going to be reading from Romans 15, 14 to 33, and it's in your bulletin, or you can read it up on the screen or in your Bibles. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have been completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Joy to be with you again. Uh, my name is Jonathan Iverson, and joined by my wife Maggie and our six girls here this morning. <clears throat> uh, would you bow your heads and pray with me as we ask for God to help us uh, in the hearing of his word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your glory. We thank you for your love for us, for your grace that you've poured out upon us. Um, Father God, we pray and thank you for the ways in which you have providentially enabled us to come to know you, uh, put our faith in you, trust you. For those of us that are here that haven't done that yet, they can be here and hear your word preached, hear your word sung, join in the prayers of God's people. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd indwell this place. Help us to see with eyes of faith your heart for the nations, your heart for the lost of this world. And may that heart also be ours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> 
Well, many of you have heard the story, perhaps, of uh, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a young 20th century Christian missionary, um, I believe a Wheaton grad. Uh, he set out on naming Christ where Christ had not been named. That was his life's ambition. Gathered together a group of friends, and together uh, they moved down, or they went down to make contact with a very remote Ecuadorian tribe. Several times, after several attempts, finally on January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and his four friends were killed by the people that they were trying to reach. What's interesting about the story, though, is what happened after their martyrdom, after they gave their life in trying to reach this remote Ecuadorian tribe for the gospel. The media at large started to celebrate them to some degree. They were featured in Life magazine. A number of pages were given and dedicated to them and their mission and their death. To some degree, among Christians, they were heroes. They inspired many to go, to give, uh, to reach those Ecuadorian tribes with the gospel. They even made a movie about it, and they were considered heroes. 2018, there was a young uh, missionary American man by the name of John Chow, and he actually came from uh, Jim Elliott's alma mater, same school. He was no less inspired by Jim, by the missionary impulse of the Bible. And in 2018, he rowed a small boat onto the shores of an isolated island in the Indian Ocean, an island by the name of the North Sentinel Island, part of Indian geography. It's a small island, only about 23 square miles in size. It's inhabited by the North Sentinelese people, of whom it is estimated there are only about 150 left. This people group has been isolated from the rest of the world for thousands of years. Their language is indiscernible to linguists anywhere in the world. And so there's no idea how to reach them or communicate with them. Even if the outside world wanted to study their language and their culture, they'd be, un be, they'd be unable to approach them or come near them because they're ruthless. And any time anyone has ever tried to go to the island, the North Sentinelese have attacked them and even killed those who persisted. Chow's intent was to live among the North Sentinelese, to learn their language, to attend to their physical needs, and then to seek to share his faith with them. He prepared as best he could for a number of years in missions programs. He raised support. He went through a missions organization. He learned linguistics and studied linguistics. He learned uh, a skill to uh, basic village and uh, medicine to help them as best he could with medical needs. He got all the vaccinations that he thought he needed, and he set out in boldness, knowing full well what would come. His first, his first effort to make contact with the islanders resulted in him getting shot at by their arrows while on his boat. One of the arrows, he said, he wrote in his journal, pierced his Bible. He rode away to another island where he, was, uh, where he had his stuff came back and tried to make contact several times. Finally, he came back, and the last time he did, he landed and came and began to try to speak to them and communicate to them and bring them gifts, and they brutally killed him on the beach. Now, nowadays, when we hear stories like this, the very idea of trying to convert others to a certain faith, taking any risk to do so, seems abhorrent. Seems like a modern day heresy. And if you're not a Christian here today, you might hear this story 
or hear what we're about to talk about from Romans 15 and begin to ask that same question. Are we still, why are we still doing this? I just wanna address that question first off. This whole idea of a privatized faith, of a privatized faith in God and belief, it's, it's foreign to the Bible. And what is more, it's foreign to any other of the world's major religions. Every single ideology sees itself, or major ideology, sees itself as beneficial to all of humanity and therefore it needs, has that impulse to spread and to convert, as it were, others to believe and to accept that ideology or that religion. And so it is with Christianity. We believe that, that the, what the Bible says, what Jesus has commanded us to do, is binding for Christians everywhere to spread the good news of Jesus' mercy and reign and rule to all the ends of the earth. And that impulse is the missionary impulse, what John Chow had, goes against the privatized faith that our culture is telling us we need to have. Does that make sense? And, and every religion, everyone everywhere, to some degree, believes that what they believe is is true, right, or they, that they, they hold to the faith commitments that they have, and want others to also believe what they believe. Well, going back to John Chow, Ed Stetzer, who's a missiologist, these are people that study missions, world missions around the world, the, theologians that study these things, he, asked, he was asked to write for the Washington Post about John Chow's situation, because after what happened, there was an uproar in the world. Also, the media was angry at him. The world was, was angry at what he was doing. People couldn't understand why he would do what he was doing. And to their surprise, Ed Stetzer offered, though offering some helpful critique, he overall said that either Jesus meant all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, or he didn't. Ed Stetzer offered a strong support in the Washington Post for what John Chow had done. And what he noted was really comparing him to the story of Jim Elliot was, was quite enlightening that the culture today has turned on Christian missions. What's the difference between Jim Elliot 75 years ago and, and John Chow today? And he said the culture has turned on Christian missions. And that's to be expected to some degree, but was surprised Ed Stetzer more than anything was that it wasn't just the culture that turned on Christian missions. It was the church, too, that turned on John Chow. Leaders in the church condemned what he did. They looked down their noses at him. What if he got them all sick? Didn't know what he was doing. He went out alone. He was brazen. Didn't plan well. Didn't have a team with him. It was foolish. The church turned on John Chow. Now, whatever you think about that story, it's a very important story, and unfortunately, it's a story that was neglected, I think, to some degree, that we kind of breezed past as a society. But whatever you think about that, his life and his death asks us a very important question that I think we need to answer. Whatever you think about how he did it, whether it was right or wrong or confused, what you need to start asking is why he did it. Does the every nation, every people, every tribe, and every tongue of Jesus' commission remain binding for Christians everywhere? Is reaching the unreached of the world something that the church is called to do? 
And that's what we're looking at Romans 15 for this morning to really answer this question and dive into that. So look, at, look with me first at verse 15 and we're gonna see what jumps out most from this text is Paul's singular ambition to proclaim Christ where Christ has not been named. Look at verse 15, he says, I have written to you today very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service, think about this for a second, of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is using this this Old Testament uh, imagery of temple worship. If you've read the Bible from front to back, perhaps you've noticed that one of the major themes that propels scripture forward is this idea of temple, that God is going to make his dwelling with his people on earth. And from the very beginning, Genesis 1.28, God commands humanity to fill the earth, his image bearers, to fill the earth, to rule and reign over the earth with him, and, to, and, and, and that God would dwell with his people, and he would, they would dwell with their God. That's a theme of temple that, pro, that propels scripture from beginning to end. God making his dwelling with his people. And Paul is, is, is using imagery of temple to communicate here. He sees his missionary service as that of a priest offering a sacrifice to God in the temple. And what is this holy sacrifice that he's offering? Look what he says. It's the Gentile nations. It's the Gentile nations, the blood-bought elect from every nation and tribe. See, friends, Paul was immersed in the Hebrew Bible. You know, Psalm 2 makes this very clear when we read Psalm 2 that the Son of God will receive for himself an inheritance of nations. It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Your possession. And what Paul sees as his calling his, his missionary obligation, as it were, his offering to God is a sacrifice of Gentile souls. And this is incredibly profound, how he sees his work. You think about what he was doing. He's walking the streets, dusty streets and sandals with nothing much on his body, but he sees it as holy, the, the, the mundane, ordinary ministry of evangelism and church planning, of pastoring and shepherding Gentiles, navigating ministry conflicts and relational conflict and getting stoned and getting shipwrecked. Nothing short of glorious and sweet-smelling sacrifices to God. See how remarkable that is, that perspective on what he's doing. You see what that says about any ministry or service towards Jesus that you engage in. Whether it's making a casserole for someone in need, loving your neighbor's hospitality, watching your neighbor's kids. Paul's self-perception can really help us to see here that none of the mundane offerings are lost on God. This is his economy. Nothing done in his name is lost beautiful. It pleases him. It's a fragrant sacrifice to God. But what, what fuels Paul's, Paul's passion for the salvation of the Gentiles? Look at the next verse, verse 17. He says, it's the glory of Christ that fuels his passion. In Christ Jesus, he says, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Then verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except that which 
Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What, what an amazing perspective. Has there ever been any individual who has shaped more of the known world by their life's work than Paul? If you think about what Paul was up against, a, a giant Roman empire, uh, his own people coming after him, the full thrust of the kingdom of Satan and every form of plotting and evil to destroy him and, and his ministry and this this idea that this, this little Jewish man with a disfigured face, a weak body, armed with nothing but the word and the spirit, was going to turn the known world upside down and change history. It's absolutely absurd. But then he says, it wasn't me. It wasn't me who did it. It was Christ. You see, in all this, Paul's burning hot passion for the salvation of the Gentiles to press out the borders of temple worship, the, 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 the places where God is worshiped in this world, to establish the kingdom of Jesus in the far reaches of the world was so that Jesus would be worshiped, that he would receive all power and glory and honor because this is his work, this is his church. These are his nations, his inheritance. Then look at verse 19. He starts to let us in on this priority, this, this strategic focus of his, and the first thing that you'll notice is that he audaciously, audaciously claims, he says, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And you probably know where Jerusalem is, but where in the world is Illyricum? It's far away from Jerusalem. It's 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. It's like saying from, from Miami to Dallas, Texas, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. What does he mean by that? First of all, he does not mean that he has preached the gospel to every single person in that area, but what he is doing is he's letting us in on his strategic priorities for ministry. Paul understands his particular role in the geographic expansion of the kingdom of Christ. He is setting up gospel outposts in all these areas that he's, he's pressing out the borders a little farther into areas where there is no presence of the gospel. It's frontier work. He converts the Gentiles, he trains them in ministry, he ordains elders to shepherd the flocks, and then he moves on to the next outpost, the next place that he needs to minister. This is an absolute obsession of Paul, not just here in Romans 15, verse, uh, throughout, throughout his letters he talks about this, but look at verse, verse 20, what he says. He says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He says this in another place in 2 Corinthians 10, 16, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Where did Paul get that obsession? Where did he get that vision? In verse 21, we see this, where he quotes from Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. You see, friends, God's purpose from the very beginning, even before the fall, was for all the ends of the earth, all the peoples that he created, everything was so that God would be worshiped by all 
peoples in the world. And Paul sees that as the very reason for which God saved him. He says this much in Galatians 1. It's the very reason why God sustains him through all his trials and tribulations. He says that in 2 Timothy 4. Paul's holy ambition, his vision, his divine mission, and everything in his life is ordered for the sole purpose of his proclaiming the gospel of Christ where he has not been named to plant gospel-proclaiming churches that will testify to the good news of Jesus and then move on and to do it again. What a vision, what a commitment, what a passion. This has to have implications for us as a church. This has to become our ambition as well. Let's look at my second point and what this says about the church's mission. What does Paul's ambition say about the church's mission today? But why is it necessary for the church, your church, Lake Baldwin Church, to not just grow our local ministries, to shepherd our flocks, but even prioritize, not just throw change at, but prioritize the global expansion of the church among the unreached? What Paul makes explicitly clear in this next section of the letter is that this work of his is not his. It's Christ's, yes. But it's also the whole church's work. He is inviting the whole church to be involved in the proclamation of the whole gospel to the whole world. Let's see how he does that in this passage. You have to take a step back with me and look at the whole book of Romans for just a moment. Romans is perhaps, in the opinion of many people, one of, it's the magnum opus letter of Paul in which he carefully and beautifully articulates the doctrines of grace, the work of the Spirit, the means of salvation, the Christian life, so much more. It's a compendium of, of, of rigorous orthodoxy and doxology and, and, and practical application of our Christian life to, the, to living in this world. But why does Paul write the letter to the Roman church? And this might surprise you, but his, his purpose in writing the letter, and we actually read it, is to raise support. It's a support letter. It, it, it's a, the book of Romans is a lot of things, but at its essence, it's a missionary newsletter. And he is inviting Christians everywhere in every era to join in this great work. In the context of his mission, what we see in these verses, verses 22 to 20, 29, Help us begin to understand this. Paul is desiring to go to Spain, to, to continue to extend the boundaries of the kingdom of Jesus. Again, to press out the boundaries of where Jesus is worshiped. And he's inviting the support of the Roman church in this next leg of his missionary endeavors. But at present time, he says, Paul is in the process of taking the material blessings. It's in verse 27, the, the contributions of the Gentile believers in the churches that he's already planted back to Jerusalem to help with the poor in Jerusalem. There's a real sense of giving and receiving the unity of the church around the world. And he's taking them back to the, to the, to the church in Jerusalem. In chapter, in chapter one of Romans, he says, Romans 1.13, he says that the purpose for him writing or coming to the Roman church is to raise up financial support among them to also help in the furtherance of the extension of the work of the gospel in Spain. But in chapter one, he, 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 
doesn't really speak to his, his desire, that about his, he speaks about his desire to come to Rome, but that he's been pre- prevented from doing so, but he doesn't really say why he's been prevented from visiting them. But he says that here, and it's really important for us to look at this. Look at verse 22, why he has been prohibited or prevented from visiting Rome thus far. Listen to this. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. See, the reason isn't illness, it was, it was what he just, it wasn't illness, it wasn't logistics, it wasn't that he was somehow providentially hindered, it's everything that he had just said before. His mission priorities took precedent over his obligations to encourage an existing church. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. His mission priorities to proclaim Christ, where Christ has not been named in Asia, in these parts of Asia, is simply more important to him, more of a priority to him and fellowship with his brothers and sisters in Rome. They did get an awesome letter. That's one thing they got. But they're not going to get Paul because his priority is to go to the unreached. That's why he couldn't come to them. In fact, if you go back to verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. What's he saying there? He says, you don't need me anymore. You have what you need to train others, to raise up leaders in your church, to evangelize your areas. You don't actually need me in my ministry. You have what it takes. Furthermore, look at verse 24. He says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Paul loves the Roman church. He does, but his purpose in visiting them isn't even an end in itself. They're a layover on his way to Spain. His flight is going to stop in Rome and he's going to say hi to them and hug them, preach to them, encourage them, whatever. But they're a layover to his ultimate purpose to preach Christ among the unreached. This has to have implications for us as a church. Do you know today that every $100,000 that evangelical Christians take home, about 100 of that goes to world missions. But within world missions, only about $1 of that goes to reaching the unreached in the world in places where Christ has not been named in the frontier missions of this world. One dollar of every, of every $100,000 that Christians bring home from work. This should concern us. Worldwide, did you know, today there are five billion souls that don't know Jesus. And of that five billion number, three billion people are born, will live, and die. Never meet another Christian. Never meet or hear the gospel contextualized in their language or people group. Never have a chance to know about the saving love of Christ for them. Friends, I'm not asking us to miss out on what God is doing in our city, in our church community. It is beautiful what the Lord is doing in your church. But you see, it's both. It's both as more and more of you experience the grace of God as we live and extend God's grace among, among each other. It's, it's supposed to overflow from, from this community to our cities. It's supposed to go from our cities to others, other cities and, and, and around the world so that more and more people might know the resurrected Christ, both here and where he is not named. But how do we get this ambition? How do we get this passion that Paul has for us? And let me end with this. There are three things that we see uh, really help us to 
internalize this priority for the unreached. First, I want you to see that God's desire, his, his design to use you and your church isn't so much a duty as it is a gift. Look at verse 15 with me again. Paul says, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus to the Gentiles. You see, friends, Paul doesn't see the things that, I'm sorry, Paul doesn't just see the grace of God as that which saves him. He also sees it as a gift for him to do what he gets to do in serving the Gentiles. Paul sees the the grace of God for sure, the unmerited grace of God that transforms sinners, that justifies them, that sanctifies them. But he also sees it as something that fills them and, and overflows through them to their neighbors and the nations. And what he's saying is the very fact that, that God calls us into service of his great kingdom is itself a grace of God. Paul's ministry wasn't easy, right? To be sure, he was, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked several times, he was beaten, whipped, jailed. And he's calling it a grace of God to him. What a neat perspective to have. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that that some of you even hearing this message today would be compelled by this grace to count your life as not your own, but be willing to go to the nations, to name Christ where he is not named, to make this your singular ambition, to see that itself is a grace of God to you. The rest of you, Paul says this in verses 30 to 33, pray for them, pray for them, Beg them, he, he begs us to pray for them. Don't minimize this, friends. Don't minimize the importance of prayer, the, the importance of, of sending our children, of sending others into the nations to be participants in this great mission. That the evangelization of the world would be past tense fact that is accomplished in our lifetime. That Lake Baldwin Church could say with Paul in this text, by word and by deed and powers of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God from Orlando to Japan, from France to Ukraine and all the way around the world, that we have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Secondly, the second way this changes us is it changes our posture in missions. See, friends, when we come to understand the, the depth of what Paul is saying, it gives us deep humility but it also gives us radical boldness. He says, in Christ Jesus I have come, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. If anyone has any reason at all to boast, it was Paul, but he gave all glory to Christ. And friends, don't you see this? This is incredibly, when we begin to understand how we're saved, that our salvation has nothing to do with anything we, we bring to the table. It has nothing to do with how good we are, how, how great your week was, or, or, or how much you have attained to the righteousness of the law. But it's, it's sheerly the unmerited grace of God that he has poured out upon you because he, he chose to love you. That, that's incredibly humbling, isn't it? It's incredibly humbling. But it's, inc- it's also incredibly emboldening 
because God is completely sovereign in the salvation of, of the nations. Jesus has bet his life on the success of his mission around the world and he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what boldness we can have as a church, as a people to boldly proclaim the gospel in the power of the spirit, power of, 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 of the resurrection, preaching a message of hope and joy and life to a dying world that desperately needs it. But finally, we begin to also see that no matter what it costs in this life to see Jesus glorified in the nations, it's worth it. After his death and, and after the smoke settled and the world moved on from John Chow, many of us missionaries and, and missiologists began wondering about this strange case. What, what do we make of it? How should we view it? And certainly, was it worth it for him to give his life this way? And I want to let John actually answer that question. From uh, This is his journal, his last journal entry before he died. His journal was found, and this is from the last page on his journal before he died. He writes this, Brian and Mandy and mom and dad, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it is worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at me, or I'm sorry, please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to do, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. But this is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I cannot wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language, as Revelation 7, 9, and 10 states. I love you all, and I pray that none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria, John Chow, P.S., written from the cave on the southwest side of North Sentinel Island. Does the mission cost the church anything? Yes. Yes, it does. You'll have to give more than you do now. You will need to send more than you do now. We will need to be smarter than we are now. Some of us will die proclaiming Christ among the unreached, but all of us need to pray and support and, and send them. Is it worth it? John Chow says it is. Paul says it is. I think I know what Jim Elliot would say. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the countless, nameless Believers who have, came, who have come before us, of whom this world is not worthy, who faithfully dedicated their lives so that you could be brought into the kingdom of Christ, say it's worth it. But more importantly, Jesus says it's worth it. Jesus says it's worth it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame for you, for his elect among the North Sentinelese, among the Ukrainians, among the Russians, among the Japanese among the nations of India. When we begin to see what Jesus did for us, that we, we begin to see that Jesus left the safety of heaven to go on mission for you, to save you, to seek and to save the lost. When that starts to sink in, cut us deep in our hearts, it's gratitude that flows out. And a deep, unquenchable 
passion like Paul to see that more people in more places are worshiping our gracious and loving Savior. It's worth it, friends, because Jesus is worth it. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, who so loved the world that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. We confess this morning our lack of zeal for your glory among the nations, our lack of love for the lost. We have not only failed to seek first your kingdom, but have so often sought to establish our own. Would you have mercy upon us, forgive us for our misplaced priorities and commitments. Help us to obey the Great Commission, to abound in the work of the Lord with confidence, humility, because the stone is rolled back, the grave is empty, and the one who sends us to make disciples speaks with all authority in heaven and on earth.